going to be looking at uh, the Christmas story this morning, uh, but I want to kind of tell it in sort of a unique way. Because um, a lot of times when I hear the, the Christmas story from the Bible, they, they usually tell you one account or another account. And there's actually two particular accounts in the Bible that, um, that chronicle what happened during the Christmas story and some of the, some of the key events that happened along with that Christmas story. Uh, one of them is in the book of Luke, and then the other one is in the, the book of Matthew. And I want to give you guys a complete look at this story because, like, I, I go around and I'm looking at all these Christmas decorations, and, you know, it's cool to kind of see Santa Claus and the reindeers and all that, but let's be honest, we need to be focused on what actually happened, which was the birth of Jesus Christ, okay? And, you know, in in all honesty, like when you go around and you look at uh, some of these nativity scenes, they're actually historically incorrect, how they depict uh, what was going on there. Um, and we're going to get into that a little bit today um, because we're we're going to go straight from the word and we're going to take a look at how things actually unfolded, okay, during the Christmas story. Um, You know, and and hopefully, uh, as we go through this, we'll get a chance to see uh, not only what happens from the perspective of Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, but also get drawn into the lives of of people that came to visit them during this time, okay? Um, And we're going to see how uh, they both influenced Mary, Jesus, and Joseph, and how Joseph, well, how particularly Jesus impacted those people that came to see Jesus, okay? So we are going to start in the book of Luke, chapter 2, and we're going to be starting at verse 1, where the Bible says this. At that time, the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census, and because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. Verse 5 says, He took with him Mary, whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. And our last verse says, She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. I want to preach and teach to you from a sermon entitled, What to Expect When You're Expecting. What to expect when you're expecting. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you now, and we pray that, God, we pray that our expectancy would be in the right place this morning. God, we pray that each and every person that has come here has come expecting to hear the word. God, we pray that each and every person that has come is expecting to receive something from you, to place into their hearts and apply in their lives. God, we, we ask that you, uh, that you be clear in the message that you speak this morning, and we pray that each and every person will be touched. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we have... Uh, If we go back to verse 1, we have uh, a decree that goes out from Roman Emperor Caesar Augustus. And basically, this this whole process of getting this census uh, wasn't so much about learning how many people that there were. It was actually about learning how to properly impose taxes on people, okay? Because the truth of the matter is... uh, at this particular time in Jerusalem uh, and throughout the land of Israel, uh, they were living under Roman occupation, okay? So they basically ceded a, a certain portion of their rights in order to be controlled by Rome, 
Okay? So as we go through this, let's take a look at uh, verse 3. It says, all return to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. So in order for them to uh, properly be counted, uh, doesn't matter where you were living at the time, okay? The law stated that you need to go back to your hometown, okay, in order to be counted as a part of this census, all right? So, like, for any of us, you know, depending on where you're from, you know, that, that can be a serious trip. And for Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, this is no different. Um, because now, in verse 4, Bible says this, and because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go back to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. Now, to most of us, that means absolutely nothing because you don't know exactly where Nazareth is and you don't know where Bethlehem is. So I looked it up. So if you do a search on Google Maps, you'll find that that trip was 97 miles, okay, 97 miles from Bethlehem to Nazareth. Now, for us, that's like an hour and a half car ride. For them, that was like a serious trip by mule, okay, or horse, if you could afford it, but they couldn't. They were traveling by mule, okay. Mary is very much pregnant at this time, okay, so picture this uh, to all the ladies in the house that have had children before, okay? Picture being like eight, nine months pregnant and sitting on the back of a mule for 97 miles, okay? All right, so now y'all got the picture, right? So they had to travel these 97 miles to get to, uh, to get to, Nat uh, I'm sorry, to get to Bethlehem uh, because they had to be counted by law as a part of this census, okay? So they make this trip, and then uh, if we drop down to verse 7, it, it says this. While she was there, she gave birth to her firstborn son. She, she wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available to them. Now, this is, <laughs> this baffles me because at this particular point in history, um, the Jews were very, very much a hospitable people, okay? So, like, when you would go to a person's house to visit, you would walk in, they would greet you with a kiss on both cheeks, and then they would sit you down and they would wash your feet to knock the dust off your feet, okay? This is how hospitable it was, but check this out. There was no lodging available for a couple that was obviously pregnant, okay? And how jacked up is that, okay? That, that <laughs> you got a pregnant woman that's out, middle of the night, they can't find any lodging anywhere because nobody is hospitable enough to give them a place to stay just for the night, okay? Until one poor sap opens up his barn, uh, which at this time, they didn't have barns like, like, like we have nowadays. You go to a farm and you see this like big constructed building. Most of the time when they, when they had like stables, they would have a cave where they stored the livestock, where they stored these animals, right? So they were living in, they were basically re relegated to being in this cave. It's cold. It's dank. I can't even imagine how it smelled, okay, with all that livestock, okay? And this, is, this was the best, the best form of hospitality that they could get on such short notice for a soon-to-be husband and wife that were pregnant with their first child, okay? And if the people really understood uh, what was happening, chances are they would have fallen over backwards and forwards to try and offer them some form of hospitality, but the fact of the matter is they didn't, okay? And now you have her having to have the baby in one of the most unsterile and uncleanly environments ever, and 
she had to lay him down in this manger, which is where all the animals eat. Okay? So this was their reality. Okay? And it comes back to, and I think part of, of the reality here is that it comes back to no one being hospitable enough even to give them a floor to stay on. A floor. I'm not talking about giving them a room with a bed in it with a nice view looking out over the city. I'm talking about a floor for the night. Okay? Let us never be that callous. Let us never be that cold of heart that we can't offer somebody hospitality, especially this time of year, y'all. Okay, so let's move on to verse 8, because now the scene shifts a little bit here. And the Bible says, that night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. Okay, meaning the angels and the shepherds. Okay, they were terrified, but the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. All right. And in verse 11, it says the Savior. Yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. Suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. So now we have this scene here, and uh, let let me just paint this for you. So you've got these first century shepherds, and, you know, they're up at night with their flocks. They're guarding their flocks because, you know, at that time, they had like bears and wolves and whatnot that would come in and that would try and snatch these uh, these sheep away and carry them off, eat them, whatever. Uh, so they're up guarding the sheep at night. Okay, so they're they're working the night shift on Christmas Eve, right? That's good. Some of y'all got that. All right. Uh, the rest of y'all will just get it on the way home. <laughs> so you got these these shepherds and they're out in this field and. Out of nowhere, there's this big burst of light, and an angel is standing before them, and there's all this radiance that, that's around him that is the glory of the Lord. And now these guys are, like, terrified because, like, usually when, when you see angels coming and speaking directly with people, what happens is people do just like these shepherds, okay? They get really afraid. They fall on their faces, and they say, I'm not worthy, all kinds of stuff. Okay, and this is exactly what happens here. And the angel tells him, don't be afraid. I have great news. Okay, the Messiah has been born in Bethlehem. Okay, and then the (laughs) then the craziest thing happens. It it gets it goes from uh, from good to better, because now you have this host of angels that are flying around and they're singing. Okay, and they're praising God, and this is like one of the uh, probably the 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 most uh, uh, I can't even call it highly anticipated, but uh, this is probably like the the wildest mind blowing thing that these shepherds have ever seen in their entire life because you know they're going through worship service with the angels, okay, talking about the coming of the Messiah. Now these shepherds, the shepherds weren't like highly educated. Uh, folk. But I'll tell you what, they knew the prophecy of the Messiah and the coming of the Messiah. Okay. So when these angels come and they tell them this, they're like, yo, this is great. Okay. So now when we shift down to verse 15, Bible says this, when the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. Then they hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph, and there was the baby lying in the manger. So upon hearing 
that the Messiah was born, okay, they left what they were doing. They left the flocks. They were like, all right, we're out. Let's go see this thing that has happened. So they went to Bethlehem, which was nearby, and they went expecting to find the Messiah, okay? They went expecting to find the Messiah. Pay attention because this is very key. This is a recurring theme that props up in each of these stories uh, or each of these like many stories throughout uh, this reading. So now, right after this in verse 17, the Bible says, after seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. So basically, it's, it's their testimony that they went, they had an encounter with Jesus, and now they were telling everybody about him. That's a word for all of us. Okay? Because when we encounter Jesus and we get saved, you know, we feel like we're on like cloud 99, not cloud 9. Okay? And it's like heaven and earth have literally shifted in alignment together and now we see more clearly and these guys were like on fire it says everyone okay after seeing him the shepherds told everyone they didn't tell some people they told everyone what had happened okay they gave everybody their testimony how many of us are like that like if we really think about it how many people in uh in all the time that you've been saved, how many people have you actually shared Jesus with, with that kind of veracity, okay, with that kind of intention? They didn't tell some people. They told everybody about Jesus, okay? They told everybody about what had happened with them and the angels and everything that they saw. This is how we need to be. This is exactly how we need to be. We need to be just like these shepherds. It doesn't matter how much Bible you do or don't know. If you know enough about Jesus to get saved and you get saved, you need to be telling people, period. Okay? And this was the strongest part of their testimony right there because they went and they told everyone. All right? So now we're going to fast forward ahead in the story just a little bit. We're going to go to verse 25. And at this particular time, this is eight days later, and Jesus is being dedicated at the temple. Okay, so it was, uh, it was uh, a part of, of Jewish custom to go ahead, and on that eighth day, the baby needed to be dedicated at the temple. So here it is now. Uh, we are at that point of the dedication, and the Bible says this, verse 25. At that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous and devout and was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. Let me camp out right there for a second. He was eagerly waiting, meaning he was expecting, he was expecting to see the Messiah in his lifetime. Okay? And let me not spoil the ending. All right, so the Bible says this. uh, The Holy Spirit was upon him, verse 26 says, and he revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Verse 27, that day the Spirit led him to the temple. Hmm. So this is funny because, like, imagine the Bible says that he was led by the Spirit to go to the temple. He was led by the Spirit to go to church, right? So imagine if he did like uh, so many people who are not here, which is why we have so many empty chairs, right? So imagine if he was like them and said, nah, I know it's Christmas Eve, but I don't think I'm going to go to church today. Imagine if he was like that, okay? But the Bible says that the Holy Spirit was upon him and that He knew that he would not die until he encountered the Messiah. So if he would have missed going this particular day, he would have had to have come to, uh, he would have had to come to 
the temple during one of these other major times of worship. I think they had like three of them where they came throughout the year where, you know, it was required that um, uh, by religious law that you come and you park you partake in these festivals. So he would have had to have waited at least another three months before he could see the Messiah. But he followed the spirit, the leading of the spirit, and he was there that day. And this is what happened. So when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord, as the law required, uh, Simeon was there. And he took the child into his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, Now let your servant die in peace as you have promised. I have seen your salvation, amen, which you have prepared for all people. So Simeon, he's a devout Jew. Make sure that he's reading his Bible, saying his prayers, making good choices. And he's obviously following the leading of the Holy Spirit. Okay, because the Bible says so. And he goes and he goes every day to the temple expecting that or eagerly awaiting the Messiah. And he goes and day after day, he knows God's not done with him until he sees the Messiah. So he keeps going. He keeps staying on top of his prayers. He keeps fasting. He keeps doing all the spiritual disciplines that the spirit is leading him to do until that one day when Jesus finally arrives at the temple and now he gets a chance to finally see him and he says that, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace as you have promised. I have seen your salvation which you have prepared for all people. Now, this is interesting because, like, uh, uh, at this particular time, most people in the Jewish religion, they thought that when the Messiah came, he was just coming for them. But now watch what he says here. He says, which you have prepared for all people, not just the Jews. So this was actually prophetic when he said this, okay? Because even when the disciples were running with Jesus later on, okay, they were under the assumption that Jesus was just there for the Jews, okay? It wasn't until, uh, it wasn't until the book of Acts when, um, uh, 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 when Peter got this revelation from God that Jesus had come and he had died not only for the Jews but also for the Gentiles, Okay, so this is very prophetic. Okay, so that's Simeon. Okay, now we're going to shift gears and we're going to take a look at another person who was also at the temple that day. Okay, and we're going to drop down to verse 36 where the Bible says this. Anna, a prophet, was also there in the temple. She was the daughter of Phanuel from the tribe of Asher and she was very old. Her husband died when, he had, when they had been married only seven years. Verse 37 says, Then she lived as a widow to the age of 84. And this is the most impressive part of her testimony right here. She never left the temple, but stayed there day and night, worshiping God and fasting and in prayer. You, you think she was devout? Think she was committed? I mean, like, we got, we got this 21-day this period coming up in January where we're going to be dedicating an hour every night to coming up here and being in prayer and fasting something over that portion of time. This woman was on it every day from the time that her husband passed on until she was a very old woman, until she was 84, in fact, okay, She was at the temple day and night. She didn't go home. She probably didn't even have a home to go to at that point, but she knew that she was in the house of God, so she was all right, okay? So this was her testimony. She she was, she. you want to talk about somebody that was all in, that was sold out? You know, and I I thought about this, and I was like, well, why would she do that? Like, why? why? Why would she dedicate so much of her life, okay, 
in this whole discipline of fasting and prayer? Well, let's find out. Verse 38 says this. She came along just as Simeon was talking with Mary and Joseph, and she began praising God. She talked about the child to who? Everyone who had been what? Waiting expectantly for God to rescue Jerusalem. They had been waiting. Okay? They had been waiting, and not just waiting, they had been waiting expectantly. Okay, so now, do you see the pattern that's forming here? These people are living in, in, in expectancy of the Messiah. Okay? So now we're going to fast forward about two years in the story. Okay? Uh, and we're going to switch over to the Gospel of Matthew now. Uh, it's kind of coincidental, uh, but both of these stories are in the second chapter of their respective books, uh, Matthew chapter 2 and Luke chapter 2. So we're looking at Matthew chapter 2 now, and we're starting at verse 1. And the Bible says this, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem. And let me just camp out there for a second. So how many of you guys have have seen the nativity scene and it's had like three wise men or three kings in it? Okay, so that's historically incorrect uh, because the Bible here says that some wise men came from eastern lands. It doesn't say three. It doesn't say 33. It doesn't even say 93. Okay, so it was some. Okay, so we assume that it was more than one. But we don't know exactly how many there were. But it's kind of funny how people just kind of latch on to three as that number. Okay, but that wasn't it at all. That wasn't the case. We don't know for sure is what I'm trying to tell you. Okay, Uh, so when you see those nativity scenes in your your uh, your neighbor's yard, just tell them that that ain't even right, brother. Uh, So then we move on. Verse two says, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose and have come to worship him. Verse three says, King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. So, like, I can understand King Herod uh, being a little bit shaken to the core. Because here you have an illegitimate king, okay, who uh, has had basically a reign of tyranny over Jerusalem, okay? And he was so ruthless and paranoid that he killed members of his own family to make sure that there was never going to be a coup against his regime. So I get that. What I don't understand is how it is that everybody else in Jerusalem was deeply disturbed. Why were they deeply disturbed? I mean, we're talking about the fulfillment of the most highly anticipated prophecy of all human history, the coming of the Messiah, but they were deeply disturbed? Why? We'll talk about that a little bit later. So verse 4 says this. He called a meeting of the leading priests, meaning Herod, called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of the religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? Verse 5 says, in Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are not the least among the ruling cities of Judah, For a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Verse 7 says, Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star had first appeared. Okay? So the wise men come and they tell him, uh, they're asking him, where's the newborn king? Okay, we saw his star rise up, and we've come to worship him. They came from far away. So now, We fast forward back to verse 7, and it says, Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, Go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child, 
And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. Liar. Uh, <laughs> you wasn't going to worship nobody. Right. So in verse 9 says, after this interview, the wise men went their way and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. And it went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. And the verse 11 says this. They entered the house. We'll stop there. They entered the house. So now for all the folks that argue for uh, the um, uh, the wise men being there at the nativity scene with Jesus still in the manger. No, he wasn't because they entered the house. They went into the house. They were no longer in the stable. They were no longer in the barn. Okay. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Now, these are not religious men. These aren't religious men. They were well studied in astrology. They were, uh, they were wise because they understood uh, many different cultures and many different customs and many different prophecies. This just happened to be the prophecy of the Jews. So they were coming to worship the newborn king of the Jews. Okay? And now watch what happens here. Okay? So they get there. They enter the house, not the barn. All right? And then the Bible says, then they open their treasure chest and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So they came to a land they were unfamiliar with to worship a newborn king who they had no religious affiliation to uh, in a culture where they had no affiliation. And they came and they worshipped him No, I'm sorry. Let me back up. They bowed down. They showed reverence and respect and worshiped him. And then they opened their treasure chest and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. All right, so now I've actually spoken on this in the past before, so I'm going to move relatively quickly through it. Gold, we understand, is a valuable and precious metal, so I don't think anybody has a hard time understanding that. As it stands right now, gold is worth between twenty and twenty-one thousand dollars per pound. Okay, so we all get it. it it's it's uh, uh, it's a valuable and precious metal. Okay, so they came bearing that to the king. Okay, so then we got frankincense and myrrh, and most of y'all wouldn't even know what those two things look like, let alone what they are in the biblical context. So let me go ahead and give it to you. So during this particular time in Middle Eastern culture. You had these two, uh, uh, these two, uh, they weren't even commodities. They were very rare, in fact. Um, but you had these two things called frankincense and myrrh, and they were used in the process of, uh, they were used, one of them was used in the process of creating like a facial treatment. The other one was used in the process of creating like this perfume type substance, uh, which were both in u- used in the embalming processes of kings and queens, okay? So, here's the deal. They came and they were presenting these things, excuse me, they came and they were presenting these things to the newborn king. And these things were of great value because back then, they were harder to produce than they are now. So like now, you can get get them for roughly between like $12 and $20 for a few ounces of the stuff. But back then, it would have been about $500 per pound for the frankincense and $4,000 per pound for the myrrh, okay? So this was very expensive stuff back in that culture, all right? So they came bearing these gifts to the king. But... Now things change a little bit here, okay? Uh, Because in verse 12, it says this. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route. For God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod, the slimy, the 
<laughs> Man, that dude was something else. Then in verse 13, the Bible says this. <clears throat> After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Verse 14 says, that night Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother. Verse 15, and they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, I called my son out of Egypt. And the last verse here says, Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. Now watch this. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. So this is basically why, uh, why most people would agree that Jesus was roughly around two years of age when the wise men came, not a newborn, okay? Not the baby in the manger, okay? Tell your friends, the nativity scene is off. All right. So, yes, this happened roughly around two years after uh, the birth of Jesus. But this is still a, a major part of the Christmas story. OK. So now. I want to just go back and, and recap, because, you know, we, we've had Mary, Joseph and Jesus, and we've had all these different people come into their lives. And, and I, I want to pose the question which of these groups of people are you the most like okay let's see now we're gonna get serious okay so are you like the shepherds okay so the shepherds i told you they weren't scholars they were uh they weren't like heavily versed in the bible uh they weren't heavily versed in prophecy but they knew about the prophecy of the messiah coming that was like, you know, baseline religion for Jews back then. Okay. They understood that Messiah, the Messiah was coming. Okay. So they were told by the angels that the Messiah had been born. And then after this angelic experience that they got in this, this crazy light show, they went to the village expecting to find the Messiah. Right. And they worshiped him. And then after that, then they went and they told everybody about what they had experienced. Okay. So are you like the shepherds, right? Okay, because they, they came expecting to see the Messiah. Okay, so then we have Anna and Simeon. All right, and these were both devout Jews who spent a good portion of their lives looking forward or expecting to see the Messiah, right? So they, they, they dedicated themselves and their lives to looking forward to that time when they would be able to see the Messiah. They were expecting Okay, so then we have the wise men. Now, like I told you guys, these were not religious men. Okay, they were very, very intelligent. Okay, they understood foreign cultures. They understood foreign prophecies. They understood uh, different religions uh, because they studied them. And they also understood astrology, which is how they were able to go from wherever it was that they came from. Uh, and like some estimates say that they came from like far East Asia, that they were, um, they were where like modern day China is and they, they traveled all this way. Um, some say that they could have been coming from, uh, from Babylon, which, uh, essentially would be modern day Iran. And they were coming, which that would put them like roughly around 570 some odd miles from, uh, from Israel that they were traveling from then. And the reason why they knew about the prophecies was because of the time when Daniel was actually in Babylon when the Jews were in exile. Okay. So that's another theory, but <clears throat> regardless of which theory that you follow, they came from far away to worship a King that they had no allegiance to, to follow and to bring forth these gifts to some person they had never met, they had no affiliation to, and under other circumstances, if they were not the wise men, they probably would not have come at all. But they did, okay? And they came and they worshiped him, and they came 
from so far away expecting, again, expecting to worship and present gifts to the new king of the Jews. They came with that expectation, okay? And then we have our fourth group. We got King Herod and all the people of Jerusalem. They heard the testimony of the wise men, and as a result, they were deeply disturbed. They were deeply disturbed. And, and see, here's the thing. Like, they were deeply disturbed, and the most, anything, it, the most that any of them did was call the religious leaders and the priests to find out, okay, what does the, the prophecy about the Messiah say? Where is he going to be born? They found out where he was born, and then what did they do? Nothing. They did nothing. Okay, and they, <laughs> it's funny because they were in Jerusalem, and they would have had to travel to Bethlehem in order to check this thing out to see if it was actually true, right? So I looked, and the distance on Google Maps, again, from, I love Google Maps, uh, the distance from Jerusalem to Bethlehem is five miles. It's five miles. The wise men traveled from a great distance away. It took them two years to get there. It was five miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, and none of them, upon hearing about the coming of the Messiah, the most highly anticipated prophecy of all time for the Jews, and the best they could muster was that they were deeply disturbed. Five miles. So I got to thinking about this five miles. Five miles, if you strolled backwards at a slow pace, would take you two hours to get there. If you were moving forwards and you were really moving along at a good clip, you could get there in an hour. If you were going by chariot or by horse, you could probably get there in about 15 minutes. But what did they do? They did nothing. They did absolutely nothing. And this was their prophecy. But they did nothing. <laughs> and it, it, it dawned on me that they did nothing because even though they were deeply disturbed, they were not moved in the heart because we follow what's in our heart. We follow the motives in our heart because the things that we value are the things that we follow after. I don't care if we're talking about video games. I don't care if we're talking about money. I don't care if we're talking about God. We're going to follow the things that we value the most. So, you know, I, I, I spent some time trying to, like, wrap my head around this, and then it dawned on me that unlike the shepherds, unlike Anna and Simeon, unlike the wise men, King Herod and the Jews living in Jerusalem at the time, they weren't living with a sense of expectancy that they were going to see the Messiah in their lifetime. And that was the problem. You know, and it, it, it's, it's interesting because the sad reality of it is if we aren't careful, if we aren't careful, we can end up just like them. Because, see, like right now, you've got all these people that are running around trying to do last-minute Christmas shopping and get these gifts, get them wrapped, get them under the tree, and what they're expecting is those gifts that are under the tree, and they're not expecting to see Jesus, who is the reason for the season. And that's the problem. That's the problem. 
And if we allow ourselves to get wrapped up in just kind of going with the cultural flow, we can be just like them. Instead of being like the wise men, instead of being like the shepherds, instead of being like Anna or Simeon. In, uh, in the book of Luke, chapter 12, um, the Bible gives us a story. And in this particular story, Jesus is speaking to the disciples. And he is telling them of a time when he is going to return. Uh, but he's, he's, he's telling it sort of in parable form, but... Like, it's weird because most of the time that Jesus spoke to the crowds, he was speaking to them in parables because he only wanted those who were spiritually looking for him to be able to find him. That's why he spoke in parables. But he's speaking to the disciples here. And he says this. He says, be dressed for service and keep your lamps burning as though you were waiting for your master to return from the wedding feast. Then you will be ready to open the door and let him in the moment that he arrives and knocks. Verse 37 says, the servants who are, say it with me, ready and waiting for his return will be rewarded. I tell you the truth. He himself will seat them put on an apron and serve them as they sit and eat. Let me ask you this. If Jesus came back today, would you be ready? Bible says here, the servants who are ready and waiting. Basically, you can go ahead and scratch that and say, who are expecting him to come, who are expecting him to arrive, who are expecting him to show up in their lives. If Jesus came back today, would you be ready? That's real talk. Verse 38 says this. He may come in the middle of the night or just before dawn, but whenever he comes, he will reward the servants who are ready. Verse 39 says, understand this. If a homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming, he would not permit his house to be broken into. And then our last verse, and probably the most convicting verse, is this. You also must be ready all the time. Not just some of the time, all the time. Okay? For the Son of Man, and he's speaking about himself, will come when least what? Expected. Will come when least expected. You know, I, I, I have a, a particular affinity for, a liking for uh, a play on words. So when I titled this message this morning, uh, What to Expect When You're Expecting, I was very purposeful about doing that. Every story that... Uh, every person that we've read about in the entire story of Jesus's birth and the chronicling of it um, and the worshiping and each one of those stories spoke of people who were either expectant or who were not expecting Jesus to come. So one final question. Are you living today with the expectancy that Jesus is coming? 
And I don't care if it, it, listen, I don't care if you're saved or unsaved. I don't care if you're a Christian or not. Are you living with that expectancy? Okay, because it, it, here's the fact of the matter. Like the verses that we just read through uh, from a Christian standpoint need, uh, means that we need to get on with the getting on. Okay, that we need to be ready, that we need to be living life with that as the major driver behind how we do what we do. The words that we speak to people, our attitude, okay, how we go to work, how we deal with people each and every day, how we establish our spiritual disciplines of prayer and fasting, okay, this this track record that we create by doing those things shows exactly how much we are expecting Jesus to show up. You cannot live a life as a Christian and say that you're expecting Jesus to show up and not be living with the mantra that says, you know what? I need to be doing things for Jesus. You can't, you, you can't really say that. You can't realistically say that because here's the thing. Like, I can call myself a Christian all day long, but if I do unchristian things, am I really a Christian? Are you living with that expectancy? You know, a certain version of the Bible says that he will come like a thief in the night. And it's referring to this, this particular story. So we don't know when Jesus is coming. We just know that he's coming. Okay? And every person that we chronicled in the stories today, they knew that he was coming. They were looking forward to the time that he would arrive. Okay? They were seeking him until they found him. Okay? Are you doing that, Christian? Are you seeking him daily? Okay? Because he's there. He's available all the time. Anytime that you call upon Jesus, he is there. And you can talk to him. But are you seeking him? Are you expecting to meet with him every day? When you wake up in the morning and you're saying your prayers and, and, and you're, you're, you're getting ready to start your day, are you expecting him in that moment to speak to you? When you're reading your Bible, when you're reading your morning devotional, are you expecting to hear from him? When you are at work and you see somebody that's having an issue or, or having a, a hard time, are you encouraging that person in the Lord? Are you doing the things that he would be proud of if he came back in that very moment and saw you doing them? Are you doing those things because you expect him to show up? You know, I told this story um, in its entirety, um, and, well, maybe not so much in its entirety. Uh, this is the first part of the story, um, and this is a significant part of the story because it really uh, gives us an opportunity to talk about Jesus in a way that um, most of culture doesn't, uh, doesn't get a chance to hear about any other time of the year, with the exception of Easter, because that, that is the opposite end of the story, okay? And the Bible talks about how Jesus came and he came to be the Savior. Now, for those of us in the room that are Christian, and I don't assume that everybody in this room is, but for those of us that are in this room that are Christian, we understand and we know why he came. He came to die for the sins of the world. He came to be the sacrifice for every time that any one of us lied, cheated, uh, stole something. Um, you know, any time that, you know, we carried 
uh, uh, unrighteous anger in our hearts. Like, we know that. But let me talk to the person who doesn't know Jesus. I tell people all the time, um, I don't believe in coincidence. Uh, not even when I wasn't a Christian. I, I, I didn't believe in coincidence. I believe that there was a reason for everything that happened to me in my life. And it wasn't until I became a Christian where uh, God showed me that that was very true and that there is no such thing as coincidence. There is only divine providence. Okay? And let me spell that out for you because divine providence means that God provides it for a reason. Let me tell you something. If you're unsaved and you're here today, you're here for a reason. God brought you in his house for a reason. He brought you here to hear this message today for a reason. Okay? It is not by coincidence that you're here. It is not just because somebody dragged you out the house and said, yo, you need to come to church, and you're here sitting in the church pew. You're here for a reason. God wants you to know him on a more personal level. God wants you to fall in love with his son who came and who died for our sins. God wants you to be a part of his will and a part of his purposes. So I want to ask you, no one is guaranteed the next 24 years of their life. No one is guaranteed the next 24 days of their life. No one is guaranteed for the next 24 hours. If today was your last day, where do you think you would go if you died today? Would you go to heaven? You know, would you, uh, would you be able to get into heaven on your own accord? I can tell you emphatically the answer is no. Okay. The Bible teaches us that none of us is worthy, that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And it is only by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on that cross 2,000 years ago that any of us can have the righteousness that it would take to walk through the gates of heaven and to commune with God. That's truth. And that's truth whether or not you believe it or not. But I want to ask you, if you don't believe me, would you take the 50-50 chance of being wrong and going against what I'm telling you this morning? 50-50 shot. You can go to heaven or you can go to hell. Would you take it? Would you take, would you pridefully consider taking the stance, I'm good, I'm okay, I don't need Jesus. Mm. Life may be all right right now, but eternity is forever. And there is always a price to pay for sin. The Bible teaches us that we are all sinners, okay? It is only the Christians that are saved by God's grace that will go to heaven one day. So let me ask you again. If you died today, where would you be going? If you are unsure about where you are going, the Bible teaches us that we are only one prayer away. We are only one prayer away. And if you surrender your life and you realize, look, Lord, you know what? I know I haven't been living right. I know that you have something better for me. I've heard the call and I'm, re I'm ready to answer. If you know that's what is in your heart right now, you can come to Jesus and be free from all of that condemnation. You can be free from all of the consequences of living a life outside of salvation. So 
I'm going to pray and I'm going to close and then I'm going to extend an invitation to those of you that don't know Christ today. And when I do that, if you're not saved and you know that God is calling you, I need you to respond. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for sending him. We thank you for all that his life, death, and resurrection means to us as Christians. God, we thank you for everything that you have done for us through that cross. God, we know that there is no way any of us could ever measure up to the amount of righteousness that it would take to get into heaven on our own. And we thank you so much for all that you have done for us. God, we thank you that you've given us these stories for our faith and that you've given us uh, the example to live through Jesus Christ. God, we pray now um, and we just ask that you would help us to apply these lessons to our lives and that we would never become complacent about your place in our life, that we would not live with the expectancy that you are coming someday. God, we thank you so much for this time of fellowship and learning. And we pray that you would continue to be with us and continue to provide for us and help us in everything that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the AOCF Sound Doctrine Podcast and visit us on the web at aocfnow.org. Your financial support for this ministry allows us to share the gospel around the world. Your support is greatly appreciated. If you would like to give a donation, please go to aocfnow.org. Abundant Life Christian Fellowship Church, loving God, loving people.